Hello, and welcome to HR Unplugged. In today's episode, Anita Grantham, Bamboo HR Head of HR, is joined by Laura Butler, Chief People Officer at Entrada. They'll be giving you a first look at new data on the state of HR leadership and sharing expert insight into what that data means for you as an HR leader. For example, did you know that 100% of enterprises have HR pros, but only 34% of startups do? Anita and Laura will also share important wisdom on how HR pros can make the case for HR as businesses tighten their belts in 2023. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to episode 15, making the case for HR in 2023. Such a hot topic. And I'm excited to continue to share that the HR Unplugged podcast feed is updated weekly with live events and um, other bonus content that we have. I'm so excited because we have a really exciting guest. I've known Laura since, you know, I got connected with her when she moved here to Utah. What year did you move here, Laura? Was it 2019? 2017, but I think we had the last years of the pandemic in the middle. <laughs> we, did, we did. We can't those kind of condensed together. <laughs> and Laura is the Chief People Officer at Entrada. Welcome, Laura. I'm so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Very, very excited to be here. Before I start, I just want the audience to get to know you just in case um, they don't know you. And I just want to share, I've watched Laura from afar for so long, and I've seen you spend your career building company cultures where everyone really feels included and welcome. You know, from what I know about you, your focus is on helping people bring their best selves to work. And we're going to talk about how you do that a little bit later. Um, you've been working in HR for some time, and you've had some great companies from Pacific Gas and Electric to Adobe Workfront to TalkDesk. And now, you know, now you're at Entrada, so you have a wide range in background and experience. And I'm curious, is there a, a lesson that you've learned along the way that you'd want to share, um, something they can take with them in their roles in HR that you'd want to share? Sure. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the lessons that I've learned may seem really simple, but uh, it's around using jargon. I used to think it was, you know, I would sound smart if I was using the right acronyms or the right language uh, to really show that I knew what I was talking about. And actually jargon is a great way to make people feel excluded and like they don't belong. And that includes even, you know, if you're talking about HR jargon in a department or in any area, when you're using jargon and acronyms, it, it separates people. And so as I actually, when I learned that, I found I was able to connect across the business a lot easier as well. You know, it's so fun that you said that. I first got that feedback from one of my first CMOs that I worked with, because I like to use jargon around things that aren't HR, because I don't mm -hmm. love that term. Mm -hmm. And so I try to create different names for things in our department. And it doesn't matter. People just know the name for what the name is. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's just not worth the fight. And it was great feedback that I received early on. Oh, my gosh. Like the debate between human resources and human capital. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it just it's people, you know, at the end of the day? But yeah, the less jargony that it sounds, actually, the better. It's true. It's true. Just keep it simple. It mm -hmm. makes it better. Well, one of the things that you've done to create an inclusive workforce and help people feel awesome in the work that they do every day is you like to work with people who bring out their own superpower. And in our prep session, I just I just love this conversation. Talk a little bit more about what you mean around knowing your superpower. Well, I feel like, first of all, we like to work with people that can see the best in us and really help amplify the things that we have passion for, that we're good at, and that the world needs. So kind of that sweet spot. And, you know, a story actually that happened just since um, I've joined Entrada was I was doing skip levels to get to know people and I like playing games. And so I was talking to someone about what games they like to play. And we brought some of those games in the office and I got to observe them playing these games and seeing this incredible strategic mindset, the way that they integrated they brought a lot of joy to what they were doing. And so I suggested a rotation to our people operations function where they could get more involved with some of the systems. And that was very far from what the individual is doing was recruiting coordination. 
They never even knew that career path existed. They did the rotation and wrote me the sweetest note on Slack saying, how did you even know this, that this existed in me? I didn't realize I had these skills and I'm so happy and uh, absolutely doing gangbusters. And so I think that's sort of a win-win. And I, I just love investigating like, what's the skill that if this person did that at work, they would find themselves in a state of flow all the time. There's no, no one that misses out when that happens. It reminds me, I'm a big Marcus Buckingham fan and playing to your strings. It reminds me a lot about that. And it's so easy to identify our weaknesses, but I don't know that we focus enough time on our superpowers and how we leverage that into our day jobs. I, I agree. I think that sometimes, you know, when you think about the things that you love to do or hobbies, what are those things that are connections? I mean, one thing I, I think is interesting uh, about the report that, that Bamboo HR just released was the notion of how many LinkedIn connections HR leaders have. I mean, it's like more than anyone else. And it is where people are finding business leads. And I think even about the superpower of a function that at, you know, at the table, that is a, a value HR brings to the table that I don't even know if marketing or the executive team leverages fully is how connected the HR teams are. So there's superpowers in individuals, there's superpowers in teams, and looking for that competitive advantage that's easy and effortless is just magic. You know, it's a great question that you can ask while you're onboarding, while you're meeting new people, while you're interviewing. Like this is a multi-purpose question that you all have to take forward into what you're doing you know, later today and tomorrow is really understanding what the superpowers are, the people that you work with and the candidates that you're interviewing and placing them in those jobs makes such a difference. I love this. So let's get to the details of the state of HR leadership report. Uh, this report is live. It went live today and we have so many good things to cover. Um, it's really interesting because of the data that we're seeing in this report. So let me um, level set this just a little bit. Um, women dominate the top levels of HR leadership. I don't think that's a surprise for us. While men still dominate the executive boardroom across the U.S., HR is the exception. 72% of the Fortune 100 have female HR leads and 81% of the Inc. 100 have female HR leads. Laura, what do you think about this? Why do you think HR provides the right path for women to see themselves in leadership roles? I think HR is a cool path because on the executive team, it's the position that has the most varied background. In fact, you know, when I think about like Gloria Chen, who leads uh, people for Adobe, she has a background in electrical engineering. She worked at McKinsey. She was a chief strategy officer in the company. And you look at Kathleen Hogan at Microsoft who coincidentally also used to work at McKinsey, so there might be a pattern there, but also had been the head of operations, the head of a sales function, and then is in HR for eight years. And so I feel like having that head of HR function opens up a unique seat at the table because there's a varied business experience that can get brought in, not just a solely silo kind of HR track, although there are leaders that are like that, they have had more business experience. And so as women have risen in business, thank goodness, and there's more female VPs and organizations than there have been in a long time, maybe ever, uh, the C-level position that's open is uh, the chief human resource officer. And as culture eats strategy for breakfast, I think it's one of the most impactful roles on the executive team. It definitely is. I'm, I'm aligned with that. And one of my favorite quotes, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, in talking about women in leadership, I know this is a topic you're passionate about. So can you share with us a little bit more about your passion for women in leadership? Well, I feel like, uh, you get really unique perspectives when you bring people with different life backgrounds into work and you allow them to flourish and bring their best selves because it's not even just women in leadership. The statistics are that it takes having two women in a leadership role and being at the table to really bring out the value of that. And you can look at all of the statistics that are well published by McKinsey and Catalyst and others on how economically companies thrive. And what I also like about women in leadership is that it isn't a, a zero-sum game, that because there's a woman in leadership, there's not a man. It's the pie gets 
bigger. The market opportunity gets bigger. The just everything continues to enhance and, and grow when you have more women in leadership. I don't know if, if you see this, Laura, but one thing you're making me think about is I think especially in HR, HR requires like a soft side and a edgy side. Mm -hmm. This is something I've worked on developing in my own leadership journey. As I would say early in my career, I definitely had more of this soft side. And over the last seven years, I've worked to deliver more of this edge where now I can have, you know, the CEO that I'm partnering with to say, I need the edgy Anita this week, right? Like a time and a, like a common language. But I feel like us, you know, Laura, you and I are both women leaders in HR. We're both mothers. Um, you know, we have, we, we actually utilize the benefits that we give to others. I know that a lot of my personal life events have helped me become a better leader and think about the benefits and the ways that we serve our people inside our organization. Um, in a way that I don't, I don't think other people could in some ways. You know, I, I agree with you. I think that part of it is the person in the role and the fact that we're attracted to a role around really the social sciences, because there's aspects of political science, economics, and communication that all come in. And so there's a part of like, that's the kind of person that's attracted to this, but also it's it, there should be a soft place to land and very approachable in the business. And sometimes some of the more complicated issues in business are harder to know who to go to. And so when you know that you can go to your HR person um, and they bring this plethora of they can give you the hard truth or they can give you the hug, um, I think it it's it's both sides that win. I actually ask that question sometimes in coaching sessions of like, do you want the velvet hammer or the kick in the butt? I get for people, I get, or just the hug, but let me know how I can be best for you right now. Um, and to be able to kind of wear all of those hats, I think helps, helps all sides of the business equation. It's very true. And, and I think too, that there's this aspect of confidentiality as well, that maybe is one of those early lessons learned I almost take for granted is that um, the HR function does need to have that level of confidentiality because human emotions change. And just because someone one day is having a feeling about something might be different the next day. And having that outlet again, especially now that there's social outlets and Glassdoor and everything else, having that soft place to land inside the company, I think actually gives the company can do something about it, can not just at the individual level, but actually at the organizational level. Um, and organizations that don't have an HR team or department, they don't have that. And so then people go out and reputationally, customers and investors are looking more and more at company brand and brand experience to say, do I want to do business with this company? Because and I think, you know, Anita, you said it before too, happy employees lead to happy customers. It's so true, the happiness equation, and then leads to happy shareholders too. Mm -hmm. That whole train goes in alignment. And so let's look at that because while 100% of the Fortune 100 have an HR person in leadership, only 35% of the Inc. 100 startups have dedicated HR support. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, companies start with an idea and that can be like a coder or someone with a sales idea and they get together and then they try to get a customer and that's sort of the organic growth. It rarely, I, I can't imagine a company starting saying, what we first need to do is have HR um, and then let's build something. And so it's, it's usually just a natural progression of an organization's maturity to add HR. And there are companies I would say that maybe have added HR a little late in the, in the game. And they sometimes make headlines because of those mistakes. Uh, so there is a sweet spot on your growth trajectory to bring in uh, an HR team and department in order to accelerate growth, to make sure that you're making organizational design decisions in the right way. If you think about like you're building, you know, a, a bridge and you want that to have a strong foundation and be able to withstand as much growth and weight as possible then having an HR department at a certain scale can start to help build that scaffolding. There's a question here in the chat from Eleanor wondering if you see a magic number of team members to bring in HR. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like 
that usually at like 50 people, so I, you know, at about 50 people, you start getting into some of those interpersonal dynamics. And so bringing in even a generalist to help with the handbooks and the policy making and that sort of thing. If there's tremendous velocity in the business, the, if the velocity is faster, you might bring in someone earlier just because you know the velocity is going to take over. And, um, and if you're growing slower, maybe, you know, at 50 people, you know, it, it, it's, it's okay to, to wait, but 50 is usually the sweet spot. I usually think if they don't have an HR person at about 50 people at all, then there's impacts to the culture, the business, um, compliance measures, things like that, that are probably not taken after. And they probably won't grow to a big level because the scaffolding just isn't there. So we had a great discussion about this yesterday in our prep. You can bring in HR. How do you determine what level of HR you bring into an organization? And what are some of the pitfalls you've seen people make by either over-leveling or under-leveling the role? That's a great question. So as you talk about like building the scaffolding, I mean, you notice even at 50 people, I wouldn't recommend bringing a chief human resource level person in at that time because it's 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 a bit overkill. You need to start getting those building blocks, the fundamentals of compliance and the handbook and the rituals and the processes in place. And someone who really knows HR well is important. And that's where you look at the SHRM certifications and all the great value of that. You've got to do that to start building that block. And then as the company grows and becomes more mature and the HR function is more mature, and I love like Josh Berzin's uh, model. Gartner has a great model too. There's great HR maturity models. And as it becomes more mature, the CHRO should be able to tightly connect what's happening at the executive table and the dynamics going on at the executive team to the business strategy and operations and connect the compliance efforts of HR. And as I mentioned, you see a lot of non-traditional people in the HR role helping to do that translation and connection. And that's really that CHRO. If you're not ready for that, and you're going to ask the CHRO to do a lot of those compliance-related and critically important activities, then it's probably too early for a CHRO in the organization. These are great interviewing questions. One of the questions I always ask small companies is, what's the primary thing that you want this role to do? And you'll get that sense, Laura, like what you're talking about, what's most important to them. And if you're working with a CEO that hasn't had strong HR partnership in the mm -hmm. past, you're going to get a different answer and the tasks will be different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the reasons why I was excited to come partner with Brad Wrencher was because he had such a great, amazing HR system built by Donna Morris, right? Mm -hmm. He knew the power of strategic HR. He knew how to leverage business partners. So there was no question that he would know how to leverage me in this role, but not all CEOs grew up that way. So how, if you're talking with a newer CEO who's worried about leveling this, what advice would you give them? And what advice would you give the candidate talking to the CEO about the job? You know, it's a really good question. And part of it is the motivation on why is a CEO looking for a CHRO? I've literally had people say, because the board said we need one. Yeah. Um, and that is a very difficult place to walk into uh, versus the leader. You know, one of the things I appreciated about Adam at Entrada is he really wanted to make an investment in leadership development, culture building, talent management, diversity and inclusion, all of those, and make sure that we're doing it in a compliant way too, of course, and that those building blocks are there. But when he's talking about that and the culture he wants to create at the executive team, those are the, that's speaking my language. That is huge. And then also leveraging the CHRO uh, on customer advisory boards and getting the CHRO involved with customers is also a tell that they're ready for a CHRO. When the idea is, oh, yeah, no, I don't know what you would do with customers. That's probably more a VP of HR level resource that they're looking for. Not that that person or that company might evolve to needing a CHRO, but they're just not there yet. So I wish I wish we had Katie Burke in this conversation. I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but she posted on LinkedIn a full article about this topic. Oh, so really? working, yeah, you've got to go check it out. I read it last night. So if you're looking for specific questions around this full topic, it's a really useful artifact. 
So definitely, definitely check it out. And I think you had just uh, who was who was that? Just so that I make sure I write that. Yeah, down. I'll, I'll. It's hard because yeah, it's Katie Burke at HubSpot, Chief People okay. Officer at HubSpot, and Excellent. so she talks about when you. What's the question? I almost always get asked. I'm sure you do too. Is when do I need a CHRO? <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you talked about one piece that's really surfaced since 2020, and that's the case around DEI. And I know I've been on a big learning journey myself around this and how I've evolved, how I best think that we can approach this in the workplace. Only 3% of startups have DEI leadership compared to 85% of enterprises. So I'm curious your take on this piece and how it fits into your overall vision for talent and culture. Well, I feel like, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it means that like startups are less interested in DEI or have any other HR discipline. It just means that enterprise companies tend to have bigger teams that they can dedicate and focus individuals on this. I feel like that um, with a startup, uh, you might have individual roles and passions around DE&I, and leaning into that helps engage employees uh, who want to contribute more and more and more. That is a competitive advantage, is the degree to which which a value system of the company aligns with the value system of our employees. We just actually launched Entrada Cares as kind of our umbrella over corporate uh, social responsibility and DE&I and B. We were doing many aspects, but just sort of as that umbrella. And I did a call to see who was interested in contributing. And it was an unbelievable uh, response rate on people that wanted not just to get involved, but to have a leadership role and by the way, this is things that people are often doing on their in their spare time. And so this just shows the importance. We we did a at a previous company, we did a neurodiverse internship. And to get people ready, we said, all right, we're going to do a training on leading with neurodiversity. And we had almost half the company joined that webinar. And we only had 12 interns coming in on one day and half the company joined. And after that, this I'll never forget, one of the leaders said he had an employee who he had thought was disengaged, not interested, come to him and say that he was on the spectrum and Mm -hmm. felt comfortable finally after four years with the company saying, that to his leader. And his leader had been interpreting things completely different for years. And so when you really bring out those types of things and you show that it matters, people can raise their hand and say, hey, I can be me here. I can share this information. And it helps other people feel more safe to do the same. And when we're not having to pretend or cover who we are, it, we, we're able to actually do better work and have more fun doing it. I love how you're saying it's tied all together and it's integrated into your overall strategy that you're putting together. Again, making a strong case for how you leverage HR strategically inside an organization, no matter the size. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways, Laura, is that it doesn't matter what size you are. You can still do these things inside your organization. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely true. So one more interesting thing before we move on the idea that startups are genuinely, generally only employing one or a few HR professionals is the idea that startups are rebranding the name HR. Here are a few titles that have surfaced in the report. Chief Colleague Experience Officer. Like I wouldn't know what that one would mean. That would, that's an interesting one. Head of Human Capital Management. Here's your HCM. VP of Talent, Chief of Staff. VP of Employee Success. Good Salesforce term. So 39% of startups have heads of HR that have used the title chief people officer. And then you compare that to 21% of enterprises who still seem to prefer the typical naming conventions of human resources. Do you have any thoughts or advice for people as as they're thinking about the titling nomenclature architecture? Well, it's funny, you know, I, I sit, like we talked about jargon, like, Whatever people are familiar with, call it that. And so people right. understand and get a sense of it. But I do think the nature of HR is wildly changing due to technology entrants like Bamboo, like Workday, other providers of HRIS services, as well as technologies. I mean, I love the, you know, welcome to get people their offer. There's all of this technology. We were talking about ChatGBT earlier, this technology that's getting introduced and it's changing 
what is the job of HR and the fluency required in technology and data that's unparalleled to what used to happen. And so I feel like we're in many ways architects of federating that technology. So you're seeing things come up like the digital work experience and ensuring that that people look at hybrid work and remote work and there's a remote work officer and, and those types of things. So the role of HR, because of these technologies and the scale that they offer, it's it's about helping people optimize, codifying those in the software and optimizing those experiences so that leaders are able to generate great results. It is, after all, the manager's job to lead people, not HR's job. And with these tools, we're able to really help the managers do that more effectively. But again, that changes the job of HR. It does. It does change the job of HR. And that's why I wonder if you look at the use case of Adobe or Microsoft with McKenzie backgrounds, I've been saying for years that the future of HR is a consulting background. It is a high data fluency background. And so if you think about, you know, becoming an HR manager or a leader, um, we have some interesting data we can share about the different paths folks are taking to becoming an HR leader. Um, can you share a little bit around what you've seen in this? Uh, well, the variety of career paths, I mean, really, I feel like even I have a jagged resume from product and sales and then moving into HR in a variety of different dimensions for different sizes of companies and industries. So it is a very there's a tapestry of roles that can bring you to leading HR. Uh, but there's also things, there was uh, something in the chat about, you know, hey, I'm the COO of a small company and I'm kind of also HR. And I'd say that's a very common thing, especially if you're going to say open a new country. We have a leader in Amsterdam who it's a small team right now. And in many ways, the competency we had to hire for that role had to be someone who was a bit of a hybrid and able to do both of those things because managing people isn't unique to just one department. It's just kind of the specialization. So I feel like becoming the head of HR is rote specialization over time to HR, but getting there is a very, is a varied path. It is a varied path. And I think we're seeing it more varied, right? We're seeing people come out from all areas of the business because we all have the responsibility, like you said, of leading people. Like we see 35% of HR leaders at Fortune 100 and Inc. 500 companies have mm-hmm. earned a bachelor degree. You know, a lot of them have a psychology degree, a small amount have a law degree, a smaller amount have a finance, and the smallest amount of HR leaders have an HR degree. I don't have an HR degree. Um, you know, so I do think we're seeing that we all have to work with humans. And so it is this passion point of how do you get humans to perform inside a mission to what the organization wants to achieve. And that's really the art in in this in this unique space that we're in. It's true. But I do think that more and more uh, political science and economics and HR are becoming closer together. So we've seen a lot of the regulations in states around pay transparency, posting, pay parity, how how we have to report on that information and data. It takes knowing systems to how you're going to generate the systems, the processes, the job architecture. So even though there's a lot of non-traditional folks leading that function, I'd say they all have in common a deep respect for the level. I mean, working is fundamental. And when you look at minimum wage, equal opportunity, there's so much that, that weaves into that. And this is where I think it's such a delicious job. Because there's, it's not, it's not like I have to have this track to get that job. I mean, I'm pretty sure the CFO in any company is going to have a finance background, to be honest. Um, I can't think of a CFO that hasn't. And that's what their degree is in and what they've learned and, and all sorts of things. Um, and HR is a little bit different. And it's a more emblematic, too, of the culture that you want to build. Because I feel like if you're in a highly regulated industry then there's going to be a different burden. Like when I was at PG&E, there was a different type of burden around HR than there is at a SaaS startup company. A hundred percent. I just hired a head of, um, you know, HR operations and he has no HR experience. And, um, you know, it took me a while to pull him out of Amazon. And he was like, I've never thought about being in HR before. And I said, yes, but you've been a customer of HR for your entire career. What has it been like to be a customer and what do you wish you could create as a consumer of our products? Mm-hmm. And I said, I have a plethora of people that know HR, 
I don't have a plethora of people that can think about reliable, dependable, scalable systems to deliver a consistent employee experience that emulates our values into how we help our team members. And that is what got him excited about the job. Um, So it's really fun. I feel like, you know, Toby from the office didn't do us any favors um, in recruiting. But, uh, you know, when I think about I started in software, not in HR, but in HR software, and I got to see how so many companies did HR and some were more effective than others. And so it was really fun coming into a functional HR role and getting to really experience like, oh, that's why that suggestion doesn't work. Or here's the roadblocks you run into. And for a while, I went in and out of HR software and mm-hmm. HR exactly for that reason. Um, it's fascinating. I think it's very attractive to people who like to do a lot of things. I think so, too. It's definitely not dull or boring. I've said for years, we need our own reality show. It's people have <laughs> all the things. I know. If only it wasn't so confidential, it would blow people's minds, I'm sure. Um, you know. Uh, you know, one thing, um, as I'm seeing a chat just around different education and and things of that nature, uh, I just view in education and like needing a degree is if you feel like you've got a skill that's missing, that if you were more effective at, you would, you would do more, or if there's a skill you want to brush up on. So if the problem that you're facing in your org is around organizational design and you haven't done something like that, or you have done it, but it's a long time ago and you just want to brush up on it. Those are great things to always invest in. But I always feel like having the degree isn't what's opening you up. It's having the storytelling around how would you apply that at work. And the best is having a work problem that you're trying to solve or that you see coming around the horizon. Or even if you want to bring design thinking into work, how do you do that? Um, one of the sites we were talking about that I'm enamored with lately is IA, I'm sorry, it's AI for Academy to Innovate HR, AIHR. So Academy to Innovate HR, AIHR has a great curriculum, skill paths, maps, very creative, very future and modern oriented. But I think that the degrees I am... I haven't had a, a barrier for a degree perspective in reaching that that type of role. And when I talk to CEOs, that's not necessarily what they're looking for is having that degree in HR. It's not a, a plus or a minus. They want to know that you're able to solve the problems that they need solved. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think, um, you know, the two books that have been most useful to me aren't HR books, right? It's Built to Last by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. It's um, Synchronicity, which talks about scenario planning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's those types of books. And I did go get my master's in organizational management, but it was primarily to build my network mm-hmm. around people that I could call and say, tell me how to do this thing, right? Yeah. Tell me the details of organizational design. And I got connected with great leaders at Intel and Medtronic at the time that had amazing people programs. Mm-hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. It's not about the degree itself. It's about being really specific on the core Mm -hmm. capability set that you need Mm -hmm. for the organization and how do you go develop that. I want to make sure we get back up to Jared and his question. And Jared, let me know if I'm articulating this accurately. But as I read your question, you say, is there any truth that HR stereotypes, employees and needs, internal demographics and varied traits to balance their coaching and constructive feedback metrics? So I think what you're saying is kind of like, how do you bring that soft side with that hard side and match it to the metrics? Is that how you're reading that, Laura? And maybe Jared, if you can give us a little bit more detail, I just want to make sure I'm couching this accurately. The more I am me and exhibit my earnest, it's bashed or used against me. And so I really want to figure out how we can how we can be useful to you here, Jared. Well, I find, so a couple of things, one of the things that Jared mentioned was HR stereotypes. And so I do believe when, when I get invited to a meeting just by who I am, people worry that they can no longer tell jokes or be funny. Um, they're like extra political. And if they say anything that might be on the spectrum, they're like, HR is in the room, you know? And so there, there is that barrier, um, that you, you know, kind of overcoming that barrier And I find that I've had to do a lot of work around, you know, ego is the enemy, the obstacle is the way, stoic philosophy, so that I don't show up in those experiences with with more that might prohibit someone from being themselves around me. 
and talking to them and being genuinely interested and understanding how to bridge those communication barriers so that people do listen and understand. There's a great book called The Coaching Habit. It's not that big, but The Coaching Habit is really great because it helps you get curious and ask questions because, you know, people have more HR knowledge and how to get along with people than they might realize. But Anyway, but just sort of using that as a, I look at myself as an oil can in the business, just seeing where things are like, where do I need to apply that? And not every part takes the same oil. And so I just keep trying to learn how to pivot so that I can keep being that that oil and keep the machine running. But I do think HR, so one of the things is where HR sits. So sometimes if HR is its, its own little area, then people look at it like HR is this thing. If HR sitting out in the business, out in meetings that with customers and in other meetings, and people are like, why is HR here? They start busting those stereotypes just positionally to say, yeah, HR is in the room on the product council or on whatever it might be. And disrupting that view that if HR shows up on a Friday afternoon, like empty your desk. Totally. I love that you said this. We are just standing up our first HR business partner team in the history of Bamboo. And we've been working through this. You know, we have half the team that was like, I don't see why this is a full-time job. And half the time that was like, half the team said, can I have three of them? I have so many things <laughs> to work on. Mm-hmm. And so we're working through of like, be that demonstration. But part of that too, Laura, is you can show up in those meetings, but you can't always come with an HR lens. You have to get your acumen in order to be able to ask questions about the product, about the customer, about you know the customer retention rate or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you're working on. Because if you only come with a people lens, yeah. then it's like, well, we're here to solve this business problem and then look at how it affects our team members. Um, and it's a delicate balance for that, I think. Well, it's interesting too, because customers care so much about this now. So I'll be on, you know, like a top client review and I've looked at their websites and I can match, Hey, I bet, you know, we're interested in, we're doing uh, things with Utah foster care as an example. And we've got customers that are also involved in foster care in their States and, and connecting those with the sales team to help create the shared value system between customers and um, the company through that HR lens has great value and is definitely not something people are thinking of top of mind. It's definitely not. And that's where I like the analogy that you're an oil can. I've always thought of myself as a connector Mm -hmm. for helping people see those things because we get to see all aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. We can connect in oil like very Mm -hmm. few other positions can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even that kind of goes back to the superpower is that, you know, you might know what, you know, someone's looking for in a job and who that person, like how you connect this, like, well, we're going to have this opening and we've got this person who really likes doing that, but they're in a different business unit. How do we bring those together? And so even fostering within HR, you know, bringing the talent acquisition teams and the business partner teams to discuss all the open positions and who internally might fill those can really help prevent attrition, drive engagement and help with cross-functional pollinization because when people move across departments, they actually bring a little of the other department with them and it connects the business more tightly. A hundred percent. That's why I'm like, before you leave Bamboo, talk to me about what other departments you can work in. Mm-hmm. Like you may want to just switch roles. And I want to take mm-hmm. bets like that all day long on somebody that knows our culture, mm-hmm. knows our product, knows our customer before they go out and, and go to a different company. I couldn't agree more. So there's a question here. How do we develop HR generalists or HR departments of one in a startup environment? And what's the best way to structure the team? So, you know, Anita, I'd be curious what your take is on this, but it does to me start with what's the problem we're trying to solve? Why are we starting with HR? Is it because we've got a lot of employees that are asking for basic things? Are we doing a lot of onboarding? Are people not knowing what they're doing? Do we have an attrition problem? So I I usually like to know what HR is a role, but it's there to solve a problem. And really being clear about the problem helps you know what to develop. So if it's a hiring problem, then there are great courses um, on hiring. Hiring with your head, Lou Adler's been doing it for a long time. I do love his one question interview that's actually like 20, but it's just a great format. Um, and then also the, the site I mentioned earlier, there's just, so then you say, let's train them to really become an expert in that thing first, so we can solve the problem and then continue to evolve what that 
what that is. But if you're bringing an HR generalist in and hiring is your problem and you and they, that is not what they're interested in or what they're doing, then they will say, we don't need HR because this person's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You're like, well, actually they are, <laughs> but they're not doing what you think is the most important. So always start with what the business thinks is most important. Okay, so I just want to like bold italics and underline what you just said. And if we talk about what we're here to talk about, which is making the case for HR, the best way to make the case for HR is to understand what the business problem is and why they want HR, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of times I see HR bringing their own agenda to the table, which may conflict with what the business sees it to do. Mm-hmm. And then you have a value discrepancy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where sometimes we get stuck between a rock and a hard place. So I hear Laura, you saying, identify what the problem is, mm-hmm. why they want HR in the business and go from there. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I think translating. So when you look at like, I'll use these pay parity laws and, you know, people can feel like, I can't believe I have to like be so transparent about my pay. And this is such an HR thing. Well, if you really peel the onion, is it like, let's peel it back. Do you want to be paid fairly? How would you feel if you learned that someone next to you and these rules and these laws are all designed, HR policies are designed for a business need and a human need. And sometimes I think we just, and it's in the language, it goes back to the jargon thing, the amount of like HR emails, you're just like, oh my gosh, seriously, it's not enrolling, it's not motivating, it's not inspiring. And by the way, it could be, this is what we use to elect politicians. This is what we use to literally manage the biggest part of our spend and investment of time ends up being in work during our waking hours. And so Instead of acting like, well, that's the policy, that's the law, that's the thing, and I'm the lawyers told me to write it this way, um, humanize it, just layman's terms here. And it makes it less intimidating, less scary, and it just reminds you that we're here for people. We're not here like the police or someone was saying like the principal's office. That's not the point. The point is actually for us to help the businesses run better. That's really the difference is that It is about the business running better and it's not to be against a person, whether that's a team member or the HR person. It's Mm -hmm. about what's best for the business Mm -hmm. and putting lens on. Mm -hmm. Our friend Jared is back with a great, Mm -hmm. a great hard question, which is what we love to answer here. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is I've been proactive to learn how the workplace is changing. However, when I'm being me, educated, non-Christian, Black, hetero, male, and Mm -hmm. everyone, respectful, Mm -hmm to everyone heads down helpful, but stands firm on what I believe personally, I become the problem. I'm called insubordinate and I'm honestly caught off guard. You know, it's, you know, first of all, I, I can't imagine how that feels. Um, and especially when you're trying to do your very best and your intentions are pure and authentic. I found, so I was working in a culture in a country that I won't name. And because I was a woman from corporate who only spoke English, um, Regardless of my position, the amount of disrespect I faced, it literally didn't matter. But I found someone who was very connected to the people I needed to influence, who also saw things the same way. And there was a name for it in that country. I can't remember the name and it would give away the country. But um, he, he was so helpful because I would let him know like such an ally and slowly but surely I mean, at first I had, you know, it was like had to be his idea or else it didn't matter. So that was totally okay with me, by the way, because it's about the business result. And over time, he was bringing me in more and more and it was really helpful. So I, I look for allies that are being successful in how they're communicating and like, wow, I have a hard time communicating with that person. You seem to do it effortlessly. Help me, coach me, mentor me, and and let me share with you role play. How can I how can I test this idea out? What can I do in order to uh, bridge this gap? And it's those allies that I think truthfully have made made my career so much more successful, and I'm so grateful for because being in that position is painful. I don't think it's psychologically healthy, and. And it's frustrating when we know the difference we could make and it's just not getting across the finish line. But if it's me and how I present, then you know what? Sometimes it's just flanking that and and somebody else, you know, I can't make all the people like you all the time, I guess, is my lesson learned. And uh, I still haven't stopped trying. But 
using those allies, I would highly recommend and mentors that are being successful in that environment with that individual. A hundred percent. I found the same case, Laura. That's what's been really helpful for me. I really would love to help Jarrett find an ally so you can go in and kind of have those conversations and push that thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so much goodness in this chat right now. We're at the 15 minute warning here. So maybe we take one more. I really like this one. It's another hard one, Laura. Um, you know, how do you cope with disrespect emotionally and rationally? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I think self-care and being clear on your intentions is important because if you're disrespected, but for the right reasons, um, sometimes it's the long game. You know, I, I had a situation where someone was fairly disrespectful, not, not fairly, like definitely disrespectful. and um, And, you know, life happens. We, you know, are no longer at the same company. Years later, write me just such a gracious note, acknowledging their own personal journey and recognizing, and you don't always get that for sure. I haven't had everyone do that, but it was a good reminder to me that sometimes when you're, when your intentions really are pure, people may not know it immediately for their own whatever, but the long game is the long game and they might eventually and being clear and staying staying in a place where you're not all about work that you have pride in what you're doing you're contributing to the society honoring your values and the way you're spending your time it's important because if it's all about the situation and you're being disrespected then it just pulls you down so completely and so sometimes if i'm feeling like i'm getting my energy sucked i'll go volunteer at like a soup kitchen or something and i'll see the gratitude and the first world problems that i'm facing and It really is helpful because I get so much from being in that environment and recognizing to remember myself too and to be like, you know what, I'm going to be fine. (laughs) And that's helpful as well. But that self-care is a huge component and knowing that it might be the long game, that they might be disrespectful now, but in the long run, they might see it. They might see it. And I know sometimes I just have good luck going up to that person. I've done this before. And saying, why are you being a jerk to me today? Mm-hmm. Like, why? Right? And keeping it light, but just kind of asking. And yeah. I know that there's some people that I will never email with. I will only mm-hmm. do face-to-face conversation with because I want them to be successful. And I'm super open of like, hey, on this mm-hmm. issue, let's not email. Let's have a face-to-face mm-hmm. conversation. Because in your email, you leave me with the experience that you're disrespecting my opinion. Mm-hmm. And the person will be like, well, I'm not doing that. That's the other thing is I don't know that some people do it on purpose, but we mm-hmm. said that earlier in the conversation, mm-hmm. I don't think everybody shows up to be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. So part of it is holding that mirror up. And again, back to the value of HR, we need to do it from a neutral place. We need to assume positive intent and help them see the impact of the action into the culture and the values, mm-hmm. right? We want to have a respectful organization. Do you see this email as respectful and really demonstrating the values that we want to have here? And so you're talking about the email, you're not talking about the person. So that's kind of that emotional, rational line. Um, And it just takes practice to come from a really neutral place in it. And that's the work, like Laura Love, you've got to take care of yourself. You have to nurture yourself to be able to respond, um, you know, in that place. Well, and I, I love what you said and what that sparked for me is the model that I've just really found a lot of value from, which is based on Covey and others, which is you start out with your intention, describe the situation and the impact. And so even Center for Creative Leadership has a healthy, you know, SBI model anyway, but starting out with the intention. And even if someone's being disrespectful to say, I remember being on the phone with a customer that I'm like, this guy's losing his mind. I'm like, listen, my intention is that you have a great experience working with us. Like I really want to make this easy for you. The situation is that the software had this glitch and it caused all sorts of issues for you. And you've now yelled at me and really been a pretty just demeaning things. And so the impact is like, my, my feelings are really hurt. And is that what you meant? Like, What's your intention? Like kind of having that dialogue, but I like in the the intention of what you want. Describe the situation like the weather and then the impact that that's had. I think that, that sometimes people don't realize that. And when it gets broken out that way, um, I found that sometimes I have trouble giving feedback to certain people. And when I do now, I'm like, what's my intention yeah. first? Because sometimes it's like, 
to do it my way. And I'm like, that's a bad intention. I need to back away from the feedback. I'm not giving them the feedback because they didn't do it exactly my way, but that's what I'm disrupted about. So what's my intention here? What intention am I holding jointly that we both share? And then what was the situation and what's the impact? It's a beautiful way to articulate it. And what a great um, way we should close. So that's one actionable feedback piece. We want you to all have actionable takeaways. And so I think the first one is this feedback model that Laura just laid out for us. Another one is the HR maturity model, which we actually didn't talk about. We showed the AI um, document, but talk a little bit about this, Laura, and why it matters. The HR maturity model, is helpful because it also helps you understand where your org is. So one thing that can be frustrating, you know, sometimes, especially as a software company, if you hire someone from like, you know, a hundred thousand employee company, they come into a software company and they get frustrated. They're like, why don't we have this? And why don't we have that? And why don't we have that? Well, you have to sort of go back to the maturity model and say, we've got to crawl before we can walk. Um, And then also you might find yourself in a situation where the maturity is really high and just helps you gate where you're at and what experiences you can get in your career because of that maturity model. It helps you make the case for HR because you kind of understand what you're getting into and what that business problem is too. It gives you a good basis to identify the problem. It's a great tool. What about emerging skill sets? What about that of an actionable takeaway? Well, we talked a little bit about that. And I saw, you know, there were some things in the chat about eCornell, which does have some great HR programs. Um, and then I talked about IHR Burson Academy. Gartner has a whole a suite of tools to take to really learn about these new skill sets and bring, I look at skill sets like a set of tools and then you've got your company and do you need to like nail in a picture or do you need to change the engine? And you're going to need totally different types of tools. And so looking at the plethora of skill sets and helping match those tools with what you're trying to resolve in the organization. And then the last one is my favorite. Identify that superpower for yourself (laughs) and for your team, right? Absolutely. And also look for it in others, like the puzzle of them. Like what's the thing you can help bring out in them that they may not know or they do know and just is not getting the attention that it needs. And so I look at that sweet spot of what you're good at, what the world needs um, and what you're passionate about. And when those three things come together, that's your superpower. But even uh, just small things that you can do to notice that someone really likes graphic design, maybe they help you on your next presentation, but that's not really their job. There's so many great things you can do to help, you know, help people bring out their magnificence and bring more joy to work. Well, and Laura, that's what you've done for all of our wonderful HR professionals here today is you brought joy into their lives. That's what we want to do is make each time they spend with us a little bit more joyful. And thanks for bringing your light and your superpower. Uh, to HR Unplugged. We're super grateful. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we encourage all of you to read the whole State of HR Leadership Report. It gives all the data that we referenced here today. We'll share the link in our community Slack channel. And um, just really appreciate all the Q&A and everything that happened in the channel. Laura, thank you again. It was great to be with you and just appreciate all of your insights today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for HR Unplugged. This series is brought to you by Bambu HR. Visit us at bambuhr.com slash HR unplugged for video versions of the podcast, additional resources, and to learn more about how Bambu HR sets people free to do great work. 